Well, good morning. Welcome. Great to see all your happy faces at the 9 a.m. worship gathering. Today is the beginning of Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday, the day in which we remember Jesus rides into Jerusalem to the waving of palm branches and the shouting of Hosanna. But then that moves us into next week, uh, beginning with Good Friday, the day in which we remember the death and sacrifice of Christ. And I do hope that you will join us on Friday, either at 1 o'clock or 7 o'clock, as we remember Christ's sacrifice. Uh, we do have childcare up to, I believe, age 4. Uh, we're also doing something new this year we've not done before. We are going to have our chapel open uh, from noon until 8. Uh, for anyone that wants to come and just have a time of prayer, reflection, we'll have some resources in there for you so you can take advantage of that all day. And then on Easter weekend, when we come together to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we have four worship gatherings here in our main sanctuary, two on Saturday night, 4.30 and 6, two on Sunday morning, 9 and 10.30, and then over in our chapel, we also have two on Sunday morning, 8 a.m., and 9 a.m. Our kids got a special kind of celebration happening downstairs, so there's some special stuff for kids, so I hope that you will join us for all of those opportunities. Whenever large groups of people get together, the atmosphere is often unpredictable. I don't like being in crowds. I feel anxious. I feel claustrophobic. Many of you remember a year ago when the Bucks had their championship run and all of those thousands of people, I think it was 80,000 people, were down at the Deer District for all the playoff games. My daughter was one of them. She went to almost every playoff game, not because she likes basketball, but because she likes the energy of the crowd. I told her I would rather you punch me in the face <laughs> than send me down to that chaos. She told me one night she was down there, some big guy, a stranger, tried to pick her up and crowd surf her. And I'm like, if I would have been there, I... Crowds can be unpredictable. Years ago, my family went to Disney World at Christmas. Huge mistake. Too crowded. We were there for a parade. And if you've been to Disney on Main Street, you know there's thousands of people gathered for a parade. And so I'm sitting there with my family waiting. Ryan is still in a stroller. And these two teenagers come barreling through the crowd, not saying, excuse me, just pushing people, knocked our stroller over. And one of my family members was so frustrated by this, he stuck his foot out and tripped the kid. Because it's the happiest place on earth, right? (laughs) Crowds can be really inconsiderate. Some of you have been a part of the crowds on Black Friday. I did that once, never again, because I learned crowds can be really, really aggressive. But crowds no longer even have to inhibit the same physical space. When crowds get together digitally, it can be just as chaotic. Douglas Murray, who is a British political commentary, wrote a book called The Madness of Crowds. And he wrote, I quote, We are going through a great crowd derangement in public, in private, both online and off. People are behaving in ways that are increasingly irrational, 
feverish, herd-like, and simply unpleasant. The daily news cycle is filled with the consequences. This weekend, I'd like you to join me. We're going to go back 2,000 years and join a crowd that has gathered in the city of Jerusalem. This story is told in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though each writer gives us a bit of a different perspective. We see the story from different angles. So we're going to begin uh, from the angle that Mark describes, the book of Mark, chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there with me. The verses will also be up on the screen. Mark writes, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing? untying that colt. And they answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest of heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So now we're going to shift the camera angle just a little bit, turn to Luke's account, Luke's gospel, chapter 19, beginning in verse 5. Luke begins by speaking about the colt or the donkey, and he writes, they brought it to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, these stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. We don't know who specifically was in the crowd that day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna and the waving of palm branches. I suppose there were probably some who simply wanted to know what the fuss was all about because crowds tend to draw bigger crowds. I suppose in that day there were probably some religious radicals looking for a fight. But I think mostly there were just normal people in the crowd that day. 
When I think of all the crowds I've been a part of and the ones I've heard described to me, whether it's 80,000 people at the Deer District, hundreds of thousands of people at Disney World, or a whole bunch of crazies on Good Friday, on Black Friday, not Good Friday, Black Friday, two very different events. <laughs> I think the crowds were just made up of normal people. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, there were probably some expectant mothers in the crowd some business owners. There are probably some fighting terminal illness, maybe some with mental illness. Others drowning in debt. Some there were probably widows or widowers. In the crowd that day, there were probably the newly engaged, the brand new parents, the religiously faithful and religiously indifferent. They were all gathered together. And we, we don't know for sure what was on the mind of the crowd that day, although I think we can make some historical assumptions. So for our time together today, here's where we're going to go. First, I want to talk about hammers, lambs, and donkeys. Then uh, we're going to move to liberation and rescue. From there, we're going to talk about the collision of expectations. And then I want to end with three simple questions. So today, first, we'll begin with hammers, lambs, and donkeys. Jesus rode into Jerusalem during the Jewish celebration of Passover. It's the most sacred of all Jewish holidays. In Jesus' day on Passover, hundreds of thousands of peoples would converge on the city of Jerusalem to celebrate. They were remembering God's liberation of slave, God's liberation of his people from slavery in Egypt. Specifically, the event in which God sent the angel of death into Egypt and he instructed his people, sacrifice a lamb and place the blood of the lamb over your doorpost so the angel of death will pass over. Passover, however, was also a reminder to the Israelites that they still were not free. No, they were no longer under the enslavement of the Egyptians, but they certainly were under the oppression of the Romans. And because of that, from time to time during Passover, violence would erupt. The Roman governor was on high alert. More soldiers would be brought into the city. And so it's to this, the tension, the celebration, and the chaos that Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you change the angle again to John's gospel, John writes that as Jesus rides into the city, a crowd of people rushes to meet him. There were whispers about who Jesus was. There were the stories of the miracles. He even raised a guy named Lazarus from the dead. And I can promise you that if you have the power to raise somebody from the dead, people are going to talk. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the people are waving palm branches. Now, what you have to understand is that in the first century, palm branches were a politically loaded symbol that reminded the Jewish people of a very specific event. Now, we're going to take a little historical tour, a little magical history tour, so just lean in with me here. You, you, you good? You still with me? If someone's sleeping, give them an elbow on the ribs. It's going to be good, right? We're, just going to, we're going to go back in history to the year 167 B.C., In the year 167 B.C., the Seleucid Empire ruled over Israel. Their king ransacked Jerusalem, took a 
pig into the temple, sacrificed it, and smeared the blood everywhere. It was the ultimate desecration because swine are unclean animals in Judaism. He not only desecrated the temple, but then he ordered everyone, including the Jewish people, to worship his pagan gods. And to make sure that that happened, he sent enforcers, inspectors into every town and village to make sure the people were worshiping his gods. However, when the king's inspectors reached a town named Modin, they experienced resistance, specifically from an old priest named Mattathias, who stabbed the inspectors and fled for his life. When Mattathias grew old and ill, he gathered his sons around him and he said, remember the event and avenge the wrongdoing of your people. Those words inspired one of his sons named Judas, who led a somewhat successful rebellion against the Seleucid Empire. He was so fierce in battle that he was nicknamed Judas the Hammer. Sounds like a WWE wrestling name, Judas the Hammer. Or for those of you from the 80s, WWF. Judas the Hammer retook Jerusalem, made his entry into the city, and he was greeted in that year by shouts of praise and the waving of palm branches. And so that story was probably on the minds of the people as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day. They weren't just worshiping, they were expecting. And what they were expecting is a new manifestation of Judas the hammer. But Jesus had a very, very different mission in mind. And to convey that mission, Jesus chose a prop of his own, a donkey. By riding into Jerusalem in a don- on a donkey, he was confirming, yes, he was in fact a king because only kings rode in parades on animals. And by acquiring the donkey the way he did, by requisition, he was making the claim to kingship because only kings could do that. But by riding a donkey rather than a war horse, he was making another statement. I am not coming as the hammer. I'm coming as the lamb. The lamb of God. Jason Porterfield in his book Fight Like Jesus, Fight Like Jesus writes a intriguing perspective of this historical account. This is what he writes. As we know, Jesus made his way into Jerusalem on the first day of Passover. It was a Sunday in early spring around the year AD 30. More specifically, it was the 10th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. This was the day when every family selected its lamb as God commanded Moses in the book of Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, when he wrote, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. According to Jewish historians, the sheep were supplied from Bethlehem and brought in through the city's northeast gate, which was known as the Sheep Gate. So too Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, made his triumphal entry on the day when suppliers brought their lambs into Jerusalem for worshipers to select. 
as Jesus descended the Mount of Olives, his route into the holy city joined up with the route traveled by the sacrificial sheep, and he likely entered through the same gate. As prescribed in the Torah, each household was instructed to take care of their lamb until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. This gave each household four days to inspect their chosen lamb in order to ensure it was without blemish, for only a spotless lamb could be slaughtered. As we'll come to see, Jesus deliberately spent the next four days in the public eye. During this time, he taught openly, fielded people's questions. Again and again, he corrected misguided assumptions about himself and dispelled errant beliefs about his mission. Put simply, Jesus spent the next four days under close examination, offering himself up as the ultimate spotless lamb of God. But here's where things start to turn. Because the fickle crowds did not want a lamb. They wanted a hammer. They wanted liberation and rescue. Back to Mark chapter 11. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest of heaven. Now the word Hosanna has lost its meaning and impact. We often use the word Hosanna, kind of like we use the word hallelujah, an expression of praise and worship. But the word Hosanna in the first century literally meant help us, save us, or deliver us. The way the word is constructed, it has a sense of urgency attached to it, much like the urgency you would have if you had to dial 911 because something happened to one of your children or your grandchildren. There was this sense of of immediacy. We need you to help us right now. And because they threw their coats on the ground, they were welcoming a king. They were expecting some kind of version of King David to come and fight and spill Roman blood and liberate the people. So in that moment, there is a collision of expectations. The crowds, they were much more hysteric than they were discerning, as crowds often are. Jesus goes in one moment from being an obscure miracle worker to the king of the people. And then four days later, some who celebrated him will deny him, and the thousands of people who shouted Hosanna and waved palm branches will be reduced to a few standing in silence on a cold, dark Friday afternoon. So what happened? It was a collision of expectations because people are funny when they don't get what they want. The disposition of Jesus was very different than the disposition and temperament of the crowds. Back to Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, there's the shouting, the palm branches, and he saw the city, he wept over it. The crowds and the disciples are celebrating, and Jesus is weeping. Why is Jesus weeping? Maybe he's weeping at what religion had become. 
dull, oppressive, judgmental, legalistic. Maybe he was weeping because he saw deep into the hearts of people and saw the intentions, the contradictions, maybe even the gross immorality, evil, and hypocrisy. Maybe he looked over the crowds and saw their lostness. Maybe he saw the suffering. I mean, typically in churches, Palm Sunday is the day of celebration, but Jesus is crying. I mean, I get it, really. I mean, I want to have joy. I want to celebrate because I, I believe life is good. With all the triumphs and suffering, life, life is good. I, life is too short to be miserable. I wake up each day and the alarm clock goes off and I hit snooze like nine times. But like by the 10th time, I get up and I'm like, thank you, Lord, for another day. No, it's not going to be easy, but life is good. It's a gift. And at the very same time, I was just talking to my wife the other day and I said, there's just, just wait. Like I weep with Jesus. I'm, I'm not a crier, but internally. There are some of you, I weep with you. Because I know I know you. I know your suffering. I've heard your stories. I've sat with you. I've, I've mourned with you. There are some of you I've talked with that you've lost hope. You're about to give up. And so I, I weep with you. I see you and Jesus sees you. Then there are others. I don't just weep with you. I also weep for you. I, I weep for you, and please, please hear my heart. This is not meant to, to be to be rude or condemning, but I, I, I weep for you because you are so convinced of your own rightness that you have lost sight of what it actually means to follow the Jesus of the Bible. And in order to do that, we're going to have to release some expectations, much like the crowd did two thousand years ago. I weep because there are some of us that claim the name of Christ but we live in direct opposition to that claim the moment we walk out of the doors of the church. The anger, the violence, the hate, the distrust, the manipulation. And that's what happened on that day Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Just They had to release something in order to really see Jesus' mission. And Jesus weeps for you. So I want to ask three questions. First question. Will the way of Jesus be our way? Not in some pseudo-religious way. Not in some Western version of Christianity. Not in some culturally fabricated ideal in which God looks like us, thinks like us, acts like us, and votes like us. Let that one sit for a minute. Because that already happened 2,000 years ago and it didn't work. And the people were disappointed. Because the people were expecting a king that would overthrow the government, bring in a theocracy in which the Israelites were in charge and Roman blood was spilled on the ground. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm here on the business of the kingdom, which is not a place, but a way. Because see, in the kingdom, forgiveness is much more important than holding a grudge. In the kingdom, truth is much more important than believing lies. Humility 
is much more important than entitlement. Grace trumps revenge. We have love even for our enemy. We could spend our whole life just trying to live that one. Trust rather than certainty. And Jesus even said, you know when you're blessed? You're actually blessed when you're poor in spirit. When you mourn, when you're humble, when you're hungry for justice, when you're merciful, you're blessed when you're a peacemaker. Matter of fact, you're even blessed when you're persecuted. Will the way of Jesus, as described in the Bible, be our way? Second question, where are we looking for salvation? Those who went ahead, those who followed, shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. See, that statement right there reveals to us where the people were looking for their salvation. They were looking in a Davidic-type king to come and ransack their oppressors. Save us! Where are we looking for salvation? We're all looking for salvation. We're all looking for something to save us. And we might not use that language, but we are because we're humans. And some of us, when we think of what we, what we long for and hope for, when we look for salvation, maybe a person comes to mind or the ideal of a person. If they were just like that, or if I was just married to that kind of person, then maybe I'd be saved. Maybe, maybe a number comes to mind. If my retirement number, number is this, and my debt number is this, I'm good, I'm saved. Or maybe a situation comes to mind. If this changes, I'm good, I'm saved. Where are we looking for salvation? Finally, number three, will we still follow Jesus even when we don't get our way? We turn the angle back to Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And it wasn't like a, wasn't like a question of curiosity, like, huh, who is that? It was more like, wow, who is this? The city was electrified. And then here's the most confusing part of the whole story to me. The whole city's electrified, and then it ends as quickly as it begins. Mark chapter 11. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple courts, looked around at everything, but since it was late, he went to Bethany with the 12. That's pretty anticlimactic. You ever watched a movie and said, that's how it ends? The city is electric. Jesus enters and he looks around and goes and gets a hotel in Bethany. What, wait, what happened? And then the crowd just disperses. Like, this is kind of how I see it. People are excited and it's crazy. And then it just ends and they look at each other and say, well, that was fun. Want to get a beer? I mean, I, what? That's, that's just over. It's because the people didn't get what they were hoping for. Now we say, of course, you puff our chest out and say, well, of course I'll follow Jesus even when I don't get what I want until we don't get what we want. Until our expectations are unmet, our prayers are not answered our way, leaving us confused. Will I still follow Jesus even when I don't get what I want? 
When you walked in, you were handed a, a palm cross. It looks just like this. I love that we hand these out in the shape of a cross because this palm is a reminder that the people did not get what they wanted, but they did get what they desperately needed. The people were waving palm branches because they wanted just this kind of political takeover, but no, Jesus instead gave them a cross. He said, your salvation will not come by any way of this world. Your salvation comes through me, through the death on the cross. And so this week, maybe as a next step, I want you to think about these questions. Will the way of Jesus be my way? The way of the Bible, not some colluded cultural ideal of who Jesus is. Will the way of Jesus of the Bible be my way? Where am I actually looking for my salvation? And will I still follow Jesus? Even if I don't always get what I want. Trusting that his way is always better.